Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Unheard Ideas. I'm Freddie Sayers. The Brexit wing of the British Conservative Party has had a globally influential few years. First, Brexit itself, then ejecting Prime Minister Theresa May for essentially being too soft, bringing in their hero Boris Johnson, and now ejecting him too. They are now flocking towards Liz Truss over Rishi Sunak in the coming leadership election. But what do they really want? Are they simply small state low taxes or is there something else going on? Here to try to make sense of the broader philosophy is one of their team captains and recent heroes, Lord Frost, David Frost. Welcome. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So you were a career diplomat. You became a special advisor to Boris Johnson, ultimately a peer and a minister and the head of the UK negotiating team for a chunk of the Brexit negotiations. And then you resigned. You were one of the first. You, you sort of started a bit of a trend in terms of resigning from Boris Johnson's government in December 2021. I thought we'd start with that moment mm. because Rishi Sunak this morning or in the last 24 hours came out with a version of that month, December 2021, which seemed to suggest that we were on the verge of lockdowns once again. And thanks to Rishi, they were averted. Is, is that true? So I think that when the week when my departure leaked, because it was meant to be an agreed departure in January and then, then came out earlier, um, I think a, a lockdown definitely seemed to be on the cards, as far as I could tell from the, the discussions internally. Um, obviously, uh, the decision not to lock down was taken in Cabinet couple of days after I'd gone. So so I don't know, you know, exactly what led up to it. But I think to be honest, a number of factors were were there. There was the, the parliamentary revolt uh, by Steve Baker and Mark Harper and others. I think my unexpected departure was part of it and the cabinet clearly wouldn't go along with it. So I think there was quite a lot going on. There clearly were people internally arguing against this. That's clear, but you know exactly how. Well, now you're this. no longer in that government. Perhaps you can tell us who, who were they? I mean, retrospectively, when we look at that whole COVID period, it's a really important moment to understand where people are on issues of freedom and, and how they react to those kind of crises. Some voices within the cabinet were really pushing for a lockdown, as I understand it, and some were pushing against. Who should we think of as the people on the right side of that argument? 
So I think, I mean, I don't want to kind of say who said what in some of these discussions, not least because I wasn't there in all of them. I think Michael Gove has clearly was more kind of hawkish on on lockdown. I think he's subsequently said that he he got this wrong and that that's correct, I think. As to the rest of it, I think, I mean, what worried me was the, the fact that actually ministers didn't seem to have the, the hard information on which to make judgments there you know there wasn't the the information circulating internally about trade-offs the economy versus versus health you know the real facts particularly about that south african variant when it, the omicron variant when it when it got going so i think most ministers felt you know, they didn't really have the information and you know i certainly felt that for for a lot of the time so that was really the core of the problem so coming to the current leadership contest, which is now down to Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss. Since we started with that issue, how should we evaluate them? Because Rishi, it seems to me, does have a pretty good record all along the spectrum of possibility of that cabinet in that he, he was making requests for reports that showed the benefits as well as the dangers of some of these things. He brought in dissenting scientists in the, the previous summer of 2021. Uh, What's your take on Rishi versus Liz in terms of that period and their decisions? So, uh, I, I mean, as far as I know, you're right in what you say about Rishi, but then he, he was the Chancellor and it's his job to, to look at the economy. And so, if you like, there was a kind of professional requirement to try and bring that into the discussion and not make it all about health. You know, obviously I was doing the Brexit talks at the time, so I was, as an observer really of this, this stuff. Um, I think other ministers, you know, didn't necessarily have the same departmental uh, kind of way into it, and so tended to look at what others were doing and and react to it. So I think the only conclusion you could draw is that um, I was the only person to leave over opposition to the COVID measures and Plan B. In the end, the rest of the cabinet supported them and we're now in a different world anyway. So I, I don't know whether you can really infer anything from what people said 18 months ago to, to where so they are what, now. What specifically made you resign then on that? What was the plan, the plan B? The plan B. Um, I had said to myself and, and others that I wouldn't support vaccine passports. I thought they were a, a kind of un-British thing to do. Um, and we'd always said, it had been said publicly, that we, we weren't going to do that. And then some point in the autumn of 2021, that changed. And it became clear we were. And then when Plan B got, got sort of railroaded through, I spoke against it in, in Cabinet and um, uh, made clear the next day I, I felt I had to go. So that was the, the straw that broke the camel's back. But I, kind of behind that was the general feeling that we were going back into a lockdown that the evidence didn't seem that strong for, hadn't been properly thought through. Um, and I was kind of fearful about where that was would take the country. And if we could go back on a commitment about vaccine passports, then that seemed like a big problem to me. Mm. Let's come to this contest. So you are putting your support behind Liz Truss. And in a way, you represent a kind of a wing or a group within the Conservatives who are thought of as kind of um, Brexit from the beginning, people who really believed in it. And there's a whole other group of beliefs that they seem to sign up to. 
Give us the pitch. Why do you think Liz Truss, who actually voted Remain, better holds the flame for your vision than Rishi Sunak, who voted to leave? Yeah. So I, I think Brexit is just, I mean, it's an extremely important thing. It's about taking back control. It's about re-establishing democracy. It's about putting us back in control of our own affairs. But in the end, it is only a, a door. We have to go through a kind of gateway uh, to, to other things. And what is important now is taking advantage of the, the fact the levers are all back in our own hands again. And you know, there's no point in saying you're in favour of Brexit if you're not willing to do the things that make Brexit succeed. In my view, what's necessary is significant reform, liberalisation, change, somewhat smaller state, lower taxation, domestic reform, while rebuilding an effective state that can do important things properly, like control the borders, law and order, that sort of thing, and rebuilding the British state and the, the nation of the United Kingdom, which has been, I think, a bit sort of sapped away at in, in recent years. So to me, all those things sort of go together. And that's why, for me, Liz Truss is the candidate who best encapsulates that, the, you know, that she gets that uh, we need to change. Things need to be done very, very differently to how they've been done over the last 25 years. And we need to start that now. So why Liz more than Rishi on that? I mean, they've both been members of this government, so they're not exactly change candidates in that respect. Liz Truss is thought of as, as a kind of Thatcherite, small government type of conservative. And frankly, until recently, so was Rishi. What is the distinction? Why, why do you fall on that side of the line? So, I mean, they're both obviously very serious candidates, and I, I like to think I'm a friend of both of them, despite, despite the current campaign. Um, but I do think that um, there is a kind of fundamental choice being offered between continuity and change. And when I look at what Rishi Sunak has, how he started the campaign, it does seem to be on a much more um, sort of continuity, conservative, fiscal conservatism and responsibility pitch. Now, obviously, in principle, those are important things. But I think at the moment, we're at a, we're at a time where we need support growth. We need to um, kickstart the economy and get ourselves moving again, get out of the immobilism and the kind of slow growth and productivity that we've got used to in recent years. And that's why I think a, a change of direction is most important. So that change involves tax cuts yeah. and possibly more borrowing, at least in the short term, to make that possible. That's fundamentally the dividing line, is it? So I, I, the way I would look at it is that we're about to go through very difficult period, it's clear that, you know, it seems likely monetary policy is going to tighten further, though that's obviously for the bank. Um, people's budgets being hit with the energy costs and so on. We need to support them through that, that period. So if you're going to have that sort of tightening in other areas, some sort of fiscal loosening uh, in the interests of creating incentives and supporting people seems, seems important. Over the medium term, obviously, it's important to get a grip on spending, got to assume that interest rates probably going to be a bit higher over time nowadays. Uh, we need that responsibility, we need a smaller state, and we need reform so that uh, we get back to more normal levels of productivity again. 
the bit that I'm confused about, I suppose one of the things I'm confused about, is why small state, as you put it, is the Liz Truss campaign, when, it, as I can see, they seem to be more in favor of bigger borrowing. So at other times in recent decades, a political party that was okay with big government borrowing would be thought of as a big state, kind of left of center type of project. And now Rishi is being called the, the big state lefty because he doesn't want to borrow more. How should we square that? So I don't think borrowing and the size of the state are the same thing. I mean, I don't think either Rishi or Liz are proponents of you know, modern monetary theory or, you know, the idea that borrowing doesn't matter. I don't think either of them would say that. So I think what the Liz campaign is saying, given where the economy is at the moment, some leaning towards a bit of fiscal relaxation and reversing the tax increases that we brought in is the the, the right thing to do. Now, borrowing isn't the same thing as a, as a small state. The state is already at the highest level uh, the, the greatest size it is, it's been for 70 years. And that is what has got to, to change. So what does that mean in terms of sound money? Margaret Thatcher has been talked about a lot already in this campaign and probably will be a lot more. Both candidates are sort of positioning themselves as Thatcherites. And she talked a lot about balancing the books about sound finances. She made references to, you know, every housewife knows that they need to balance the books, those kind of, that kind of rhetoric. And yet, what you're saying is that the, the new version of this group now doesn't believe that is so important anymore. So the, the idea of balancing the books, which Rishi Sunak seems to be emphasizing, is not, as you see it, the priority. What's so happened? I would say, I mean, no, nobody's talking about balancing the books this year. It's clear there's going to be a deficit uh, for a few years yet, and that is true of both sides. And this, this, both both sides accept that. So both sides accept there is borrowing uh, for uh, for a period yet. The question is, what is the the balance? Um, and you know, I think the Liz campaign would say we think a bit more fiscal relaxation in the short run is the right thing to do given the broader state of the economy. I don't think anyone is saying in the end, uh, getting, the, I mean, getting the debt down, getting a grip on the public finances is obviously important. It's a question of timing and what do you want to do with the, um, the sort of headroom and change of approach that you're, you're creating. And I think that's where the, the difference is. Do you think it is Thatcherite, though? It's fair to look back, given how much she has talked about. Do you think these are two Thatcherites? Do you consider yourself a Thatcherite? Is it even relevant to talk about that anymore? Well, I, I mean, Mrs Thatcher came in at a time when the, the challenges faced by the country were, were quite different ones. There were, there were very significant challenges. And I think in terms of the, the scope of the problems we face, there's an analogy between then and now. But there were different challenges and you know she she came in at a time when the British state you know had we just called in the IMF fiscal responsibility was something that seemed to have gone out of the window a long time before and the the focus had to be establishing credibility with markets that you know somebody had a grip once again now we're in a different 
position. The, the, the country, the successive governments do have fiscal credibility compared to, to many others around the world. The question is, what do you do with that without losing it? And I think Mrs. Thatcher also believed in growth. She believed in reform. She believed in change. She believed in boosting productivity and those are also Thatcherite things and that's what we need to be doing in the short run. We need to be increasing the size of the cake so we can do some of these other desirable things as well. So do you think there is a division? It's often said that within the Brexiteers there were multiple visions of what Brexit actually meant and there was a more liberal small state open kind of Brexit vision and then there was a more protectionist or populist Brexit vision. Do you think that's true and do you think you come from one of those traditions? I mean I think both, both of those elements were clearly you know in there and in the debate afterwards. Um, I think they are they're an oversimplification first of all of, of what uh, what the challenges are because I think most Brexiteers uh, you know, the most economically liberal free market Brexiteers would still say that immigration control was an important thing to to achieve. Many of them would say immigration has been too high, not not everybody, but but many. So I think the the contrast between sort of inward looking protectionist and outward looking globalist isn't, uh, you know, I think it oversimplifies. I do think that there is no choice for the country other than free market reform, change, getting taxes down, getting the state a bit smaller. All history, all experience we've got around the world shows those are the ways in which you increase prosperity and wealth. And anyone who says there's an alternative sort of fortress Britain way of achieving that is, I think, simply wrong and can be proven wrong by history and and politics. That doesn't mean, I think it's also important that you know, the British state means something, it can control things, it is effective in the things that it chooses to do and we've got to do both of those things together for this to, to work I think. Because the alternative point of view is really that Brexit if anything was a rebellion away from the sort of open Thatcherite business first way of thinking uh, that has dominated for decades. You, you, it does feel that the Brexit vote was a, in some way a desire for more protection from the, the, the buffeting of the global economy and the power of big business and uh, free movement and all of that. Do you acknowledge that that is a, a, a driving force behind that movement? And if we go back now to whether it's Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak, a much more conventional conservatism, which leaves behind those more populist notes, it's in some way a betrayal of that Brexit agenda. So I think there's a spectrum uh, on on this, and you know there probably are people you could find who who would say that you know large state social democrat type economics and you know very strong border controls you know are an important thing for the country uh, in future. I I don't agree with that. So I think it's probably a a minority view in the the Brexit coalition. Equally, I, I think that um, the very um, 
how would one put it, the very kind of um, deracinated globalisation that we've seen in, in recent years, in which there was a lot of offshoring, in which big companies seemed kind of not to care about where they operated from and not to, you know, only to look at costs and not to look at where they were rooted uh, was also a problem. And I think it's, it's kind of getting a bit moving away from that. If you're in favour of free markets, that doesn't mean you need to be in, fa in favour of um, every barrier disappearing and big companies being able to do what they like. So it's finding the right point on the spectrum. Right. So on that point, then you're, you're not strictly a, so much a Thatcherite, perhaps. If, if you believe that onshoring or talking about making things in Britain rather than being kind of at the mercy of global trade routes is, a, is more strategically important, that's not sort of ultra-free marketeer. It's not ultra-free marketeer. I don't think Mrs Thatcher was, you know, ultra-free marketeer in that sense. She did a lot to try and get different kinds of industries into this country. And I think, you know, the experience of the last three or four years where the supply chains have gummed up and, and we've had COVID and so on shows that, you know, arguably this has gone a bit too far and trying to source things, not necessarily on your own territory, but, but nearby and from reliable suppliers and having companies that are kind of committed to the well-being of where they operate because they also rely on the public goods that come from living in an effective state. That's also important. And I think those are reasonable things for the government to talk about. Okay, so that's, that's one sort of slight distance from free market principles. What about this whole levelling up idea that was described as the driving mission of the government? It was definitely thought of as part of the post-Brexit settlement. In other words, that instead of just allowing market forces to have free reign, which led to this concentration of wealth and power around London and abandonment of areas around the rest of the country, there would be more interference from central government in some way. And I think Sajid Javid, when he was Chancellor, talked about how decisions for where to put things and where to spend money shouldn't be based just on efficiency. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. ...and market forces, there should be a bit of a plan. Do you sign up to that? Do you, is that part of your vision of, of a kind of post-Brexit Britain? Is it part of Liz Truss's, do you think? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think levelling up, I'm not sure I really like the term, but everyone knows what we, we mean, um, is important. Um, having said that, every British government for the last hundred years or so has tried to achieve it, and most of them haven't succeeded. And I think there are some very deep economic forces of geography and history that, that pull economic activity to towards southern England. That's probably been um, enhanced by EU membership and being part of the, the single market, though that's certainly not the main underlying cause of it. I think, you know, if um, parts of, of the country are less productive, as some are, the right response is to reduce the burdens. And I would say the right way to do it is reduce tax rates, uh, you know, expand the free ports, have bigger areas where it's easier to kind of act and invest and get things going, uh, rather than, you know, have very big transfers of government money uh, from south to north, to simplify that. That, I think, we've seen doesn't work from historical experience and but though, we need to do something different. So the, the idea of kind of regenerating areas, because actually if you look in history at examples of where that's been successful, it does involve spending money. You, sometimes the government needs to purchase land, it needs to put in infrastructure, it needs to have a very interventionist approach to getting a new area thriving again. So it's not, it can't all be about just cutting taxes or cutting red tape in that area. Do you, do you accept that levelling up to be a real thing, it does involve more interventionism from the centre. Well, it depends what you mean by interventionism. I mean, if you look at the, the way Docklands was, was regenerated, actually the private sector went first and the infrastructure came, you know, arguably a bit slowly later, but, but it, it came when it was needed rather than, than being the prerequisite to getting Docklands going again. Um, but obviously there's a government kind of role in supporting what happens but you've got to get the economic activity going in the first place. So I'm just trying to get to the bottom of this because it feels like the central sort of ideological question around the modern conservatives which is has that sort of moment of cross-dressing whether they called it you know red Tory or it was a bit it was the red wall it was this sense that there was a different kind of conservatism we had for example Teesside Mayor Ben Houchen here on this show and he was talking about the success they've had up there, which was a combination of the kind of things you're talking about. There's a sort of Freeport-style area going on up there, but there's also a lot of investment. I think the government mm. even took control of the airport uh, in Teesside, which is not a very free market thing no. to do at all. That was talked about as the new kind of Toryism. Do you think that is now going to come to an end with this change of leadership? I wouldn't say it will come to an end. I mean, I, I think everybody's committed still to, 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 to making 
devolution work and you know build up regional mayors and and the ability of people to do things the way they want locally but i think it, it is is only part of the picture you know success isn't only extracting money from central government and um using it to uh uh, to generate things. It's about, you know, becoming self-reliant, generating private sector movement somewhere to, uh, to, to increase things. And I don't think, I think that once again, I think the difference between red wall and blue wall is, a, is an oversimplification. Um, I don't think conservative voters in the red wall are particularly different from voters in the blue wall. They know the importance of business. They want freedom. They want to make success of their own lives and build things. And they want the kind of social capital that comes with being part of a successful economy and, and country. And I don't think there's any real difference. Let's not forget in the 83 election, Mrs. Thatcher won you know, a good chunk of what's now the Red Wall with exactly that sort of appeal. It's not something new. You know, if there's an outlier, maybe it's parts of London nowadays. But I, I don't think the, the blue wall and the red wall, to oversimplify, are really that different in what they want and need. What about one other area of government expenditure? If we're talking about small state, big state kind of questions, which is defence. Most Conservatives would be keen for continued, if not increased, expenditure on defence. Would you be alongside them in that? So I think Liz has said we we need to increase defence spending to three percent over the next few years. I think by twenty thirty. Um, I think we are we are going to have to. I don't, I don't see there's any choice in that. Uh, we let things go too far after the end of the Cold War. We can now see that. Of course, the best way of doing that is increasing the size of the cake uh, rather than having a static cake and shuffling money around. And that's why it's so important to you know get focus back on the increasing the productive capacity of this country and its economy. If we can do that, a lot of other problems become a lot easier. And we don't talk enough about that. That's where we need to go. So potentially there are increases in expenditure in a, quite a few areas then. I mean, it's not fully a shrinking of the state. We're increasing the expenditure on defence. There's potentially still interventions to make levelling up a reality. Um, and of course, Liz Truss is talking about borrowing more to allow tax cuts, at least in the short term. So do you think it really is a small state offer or is, is that an oversimplification too? Well, I, I think we, uh, you know, the government will need to do a, a pretty serious spending review pretty quickly after coming in. I mean, a real spending review where we try and look at things a bit more fundamentally than governments have done in the past. Uh, defence is a core function of government. I think everyone would say that, even the, the most night watchman state person. And um, we we need to fund that that properly. But equally, you know, spending is at a very high level. It's the high, you know, the state's the highest since Clem Attlee. Um, it's only uh, 20 years ago in the Tony Blair era that it was 4 or 5% GDP smaller. That's not, you know, that is living memory. People can remember a smaller state. And most people thought the country was sort of doing okay at the time. So it doesn't seem to me an unrealistic objective to uh, to get back to a world where the state is somewhat smaller, 
it does so you're some physical functions four or five percent well I'm, I'm not setting a target and you know i'm not speaking broad, for, sort of? for this all i'm saying is that people can most people in this country can still remember a time when the state was smaller and uh, you know it, it, life seemed to go on you know so i i think the the caricature view that you know a smaller state is going to mean uh, you know people begging in the streets and back to dickensian england that is simply not the case what we need is a state that's somewhat smaller so that uh, taxes can be lower and enterprise and self-reliance and growth can be encouraged that's where we need to get to and where does immigration fit into that formula because clearly when there was unlimited numbers of people coming in from Europe to do jobs at low wages that was a deflationary um, you know pressure and if there are fewer people coming in that that will mean wages go up is that a good thing should there be should we be excited about the fact that wages go up and we should be hoping for immigration to come down or where, where do you think a kind of modern conservatives stand on that well um wages going up is a good thing as long as it is justified by productivity and the uh, sort of success of the companies that that people work for um if you just increase wages you just get inflation and that's why it's so important to increase the productive capacity of the the economy and i think we are going to have to shift over the next few years i don't think it should be done overnight because the economy has got used to large amounts of immigration but over time we've got to get the numbers down um and to we, what sort of level I, I, smaller than you know a city of the size of birmingham every few years which is what what has been happening and we need we're therefore going to have to move to a model where capital replaces labor where people become more productive in all kinds of companies across britain i mean a bit more like continental europe or parts of continental europe anyway in some ways where there hasn't been the same reliance on uh, cheap labor and they do have better productivity records than than we do and we are going to have to go down that road i think but it will take time and it, it, getting there depends on getting a lot of other things right it won't just happen we have to get the policy environment right and where i've been discussing because immigration was clearly a big part of the brexit vote in 2016 people felt they were voting for less immigration immigration has actually gone up since that vote and there's been a huge shift away from um, immigrants coming from Europe to places further afield um, India Pakistan places like that do you think that is what Brexit voters were hoping for I, I don't think it was in the short run um, the last couple of years have been pretty weird economically and you know a lot of things have been going on so I don't think we should necessarily I don't think we should look at last year as like it's always going to be like this i think most people think it needs to decline um we should be a magnet for talent and people who want to succeed and can bring something to this country obviously that's extremely important but we've got to reduce the reliance on um you know essentially uh, you know unlimited supplies of relatively low skilled labor and do things in a different way because it is just not sustainable in a country the size of ours and the way things work here to, to keep doing that so in terms of the balance of 
immigrants and where they come from. Do you have a view on that? Do you think it should be shifting away from Europe like it has since Brexit? Or what should, what should a responsible government think about that? Well, I think we should be taking people who um, can contribute to the country. As I said, high-skilled people who want to succeed, who bring something. And I think that should be on a, on a global basis. Uh, uh, you know, to the extent that we, we still have lower-skilled immigration, and obviously we, we still will for, 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 for some time, albeit at lower levels, I think we should be kind of neutral about where that, that, that happens. I think there has been a bias towards Europe. Uh, and it doesn't have to be like that, and we, you know, we can do things differently. I've got to ask you about Boris Johnson. Um, you were really one of his people. Um, your post-diplomatic career in politics really came to life with him, at his side, both when he was a, a minister, but then also as prime minister. What do you now think of him? Do you think that he was a necessary but sort of temporary part of this revolution that you were also part of? Or how should history record his his part in this? Well, uh, Boris was central to the Brexit vote and getting Brexit done. He had very strong convictions about that and the kind of Brexit that was necessary to deliver properly on the, the referendum. And he never wavered about that when, when many others did. And... Um, I think history will judge him more kindly than a lot of people have uh, in the last month or two. Um, he cut through and resolved the constitutional crisis. I think, you know, for all the fact that I ended up going over COVID, I think our record on COVID in this country is uh, better uh, from the, the freedom and the economics point of view than many others. I think one can fairly say that. Uh, and obviously, I think he got the calls on Ukraine right. And I think that is a good record for, for three years. I'm, you know, I'm very sorry about what, what has happened. And, you know, I think... You also mentioned the, the woke crowd mm -hmm. in Downing Street as, at the time of your resignation. Mm -hmm. who, who were you referring to? So I don't think I was referring to anybody in, in particular. I think there was a, you know, there's a climb... I mean, I've said it a few times. I think the, the problem was the, um, the policy-making apparatus, you know, gradually seemed to drift back to the kind of the norms of the last 20 years in, in some areas. We weren't pushing back strongly enough against some of the things that, that people were, were uncomfortable with. And, um, so you thought he, he, he went soft, ultimately, and that's why you had to go... I don't think that's why he, he had to go. I think you know, why he, in the end, had to go was he lost confidence of ministers and of parliament. And I think the reason that happened was we seemed to be replicating kind of handling errors. And the Pincher affair was the, the final straw of that. And I think the, the major weakness of the Johnson government was the inability to get a grip on the machine and push through things that we want to be clear about what we, we wanted and to, to get it done. Do you think it all went wrong when Cummings left? Well, look, I'm, I'm an admirer of, of, of Dom. I mean, I haven't agreed with him on, on everything, uh, self-evidently, but I think he, you know, he brought an ability to kind of see beyond the day-to-day, -day, 
set strategy, work out where we wanted to go and get there. And you need, every successful government does need people like that. They don't need to do it in the way Don did it necessarily. But if you don't have that um, strategic grip, you eventually are kind of pushed around by the day-to-day -day media, the lobbies, the, the normal ways of doing things. And I think that's, that's what began to happen. When, so yes, when in other words, left. you think that was, a, that was a key inflection point? Well, I think Don was kind of, you know, he was probably um, ducking out a bit during 2020. So I don't think the, the departure moment was, was you know, the, the moment when it happened. I think the, the drift began before that and it um, continued after that. Do you think there's any chance and does any part of you worry that the Tories will regret this and ejecting their leader after only three, not, not even three years, having won this big majority, all for small acts and big acts of perceived incompetence, but no single scandal, no huge policy division. It's never really happened before. And we're now at a position where the Tories have these two new candidates who are untested, unloved, unknown by large swathes of the public. Do you think it's possible or even likely that they'll end up regressing it and this could be a huge electoral mistake? Well, I think Boris's departure was inevitable. So in a way it can't, it, it's sort of irrelevant as a question in the sense that it, 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 Boris in the end had to go, we deal with the consequence. Look, Boris was a kind of, um, I mean, I loved working with him. He's, he's an amazing guy and, um, you know, I, I've never met anybody like him, and you know it's obvious that his his shadow as a kind of campaigner and the deliverer of Brexit will will remain for quite a long time. But in well, the end, it was inevitable. Sorry to interrupt, but in the what, end, he what, it was inevitable. He lost confidence of the party. He made too many mistakes in areas that that troubled people, and uh, I think uh, you know unless that could change, then. Uh, what um, what happened was was going to happen at some point this year, but I don't think that um, I mean I think we have to note that large numbers of Tories did not come out and vote for uh, the Boris Johnson government in the by elections a couple of months ago. You know there clearly has been a polling effect uh, the the first half of this year that's associated with you know, partygate scandals, perceived inability to get a grip, whatever it is, is there. Um, and that is also part of the picture. What we now have to do is d develop an agenda that people like, we can communicate, and takes country in a, in a different direction. Politics isn't just about showmanship, it isn't just about communication, it's about having a view about where you want to take the country and why and saying how you are going to do it. And those are the things that didn't quite get done in the last year or two. And I'm confident Liz can do that. So you really think that Liz Truss, if she's successful and becomes the new Prime Minister, when she goes to the polls in one or two years' time, could equal or improve on Boris Johnson's vote, not only in Redwall, but in South of England, you think she could beat Boris Johnson as a electoral 
Well, I, 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 majorities of 80 come along pretty rarely, uh, and it takes exceptional circumstances, which we had in 2019, and these things don't always replicate themselves. So, but can, so can, no. she, can she, well, no, I, I would just say that I think more that um, the number of seats you win isn't the, the test. Can she win a convincing majority that puts the, you know, that shows that people are comfortable with what has happened, hopefully after a couple of years and can take us forward? Absolutely, we can do that. Well, we will see and we'll have you back on hopefully before that to discuss it more. Lord Frost, thank you so much. Thank you very much. That was David Frost, Lord Frost, who has become something of a spokesman for the Brexit wing of the Conservative Party since he left government last Christmas. What I tried to get into there was what the philosophy of the Tory right really is. Is it just straightforward libertarianism, where the government, as much as possible, should get out of the way and leave things to market forces? Not quite. Because on fixing regional inequality, on borrowing to help the economy get moving, on defence, on immigration, even someone like David Frost seems happy to talk about more state intervention, not less. It's the topic that will no doubt dominate the Tory leadership race, and we shall see by September which shade of Thatcherite, Sunak or Truss, the Tory members end up choosing. Thanks for tuning in. This was Unheard Ideas. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.